Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. In her 2018 debut book, All You Can Ever Know, Nicole Chung explored her experience as a Korean adoptee growing up in a small, predominantly white town in Southern Oregon. Now she's out with her second memoir, A Living Remedy, and she'll be in Chicago for a book talk next week. She joins us now. Nicole, first, congratulations on your new book. It's so beautifully written. I mean, how does it feel to have your second memoir out in the world? Oh, gosh. I mean, I sort of expected it to feel much like the first, but it's different. It's only been five years, but of course the world has changed and I've changed, but it's been great to get out there and to meet readers. Yeah. And I love the title, A Living Remedy. I know it's based on a line from a poem called For Three Days by Marie Howe. Talk to us more about that line and why it actually spoke to you in such a big way. Of course. I mean, I love talking about the title, actually, and giving credit to Marie Howe. Um, So I've been a fan of her work for many years. Her book, What the Living Do, is one of my favorite poetry collections ever. And I had written everything but the title, you know, had revised it. The title was the very last thing that Mm -hmm. was missing. And almost in desperation, I was rereading, I mean, a lot of things, uh, but a lot of poetry as well, just trying to get ideas. And the phrase, a living remedy, jumped out at me from one of the poems in What the Living Do for three days. And the line is, because even grief provides a living remedy. Mm. Um, What does that say to you? Well, I love that it felt very forward looking, you know, um, very much speaks to what grief is and how I really didn't want a title with with death in it. I wanted to kind of gesture toward what came next and why why grieving was important. So much of this story is how I learned to grieve without self-punishment. And so that was very important to me. And I I reached out to Marie and asked if she would mind if I used it for a title and she kindly agreed. So I'm very grateful for that. You know, when you started out, this was a, a story about grief for your father. And then tragically, you lost your mother just a couple years later, mm-hmm. a few months into the COVID pandemic. Did the weight of those experiences or, or that loss help or hinder this writing process? It was both um, because, you know, I, I sold the book before my mother died and several months actually before she received a terminal cancer diagnosis. So I was very focused initially on the story of my grief, our grief for my father and, and the injustice of when and how and why we lost him so young. When my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer, her cancer came back um, and was inoperable. I I took a a pretty substantial break from writing, like at least actively writing the book. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was just very focused on her, focused on my family, as you can imagine. And then the pandemic hit and my mother actually started hospice care just right around the time the first cases in the U.S. were being reported my last trip to see her was supposed to be March 2020, and that did not happen. And she died in its early weeks. And I just wasn't in any kind of position to write at that point. It was very much being deep in grief. It was also trying to survive the pandemic. I was mm-hmm. parenting two kids. They were home doing Zoom school all the time. Yeah. I was trying to work full time. And there was so much to juggle. And then on top of that, of course, like permeating that time, 
so much of 2020, I, when I think about it, I'm just back there in those moments of like fresh grief. Absolutely. For my mom. So Absolutely. I would say at first you could say it was a hindrance, but I knew from the beginning, this would be a story about grief and also about class mobility and about inequality, about the failures of our systems and our safety nets. And, you know, I did eventually find myself coming back to that story. Only now I had two deaths to write about, you know, two different types of grief that were interwoven. And it was hard to write, but also very meaningful, honestly, to get to spend time with my memories Mm -hmm. and to think about what could make this story resonate, what could make it matter to other people. Could I write a very personal story of grief in a way that would make other people think about their losses and their loved ones and their own experiences. So that was kind of the challenge. Mm. And I did find eventually that I wanted, you know, to get back to it. You said it was hard to write. What were the hardest parts, you think? Because I mean, on top of everything Mm -hmm. else that you mentioned happening in 2020, we were also seeing grief happen all around us. It's true. I mean, and I think about this a lot, actually, After I lost my dad, there were these moments, and I think that perhaps other people who've lost someone they loved will be able to relate to this as well. There were definitely moments where it almost felt like a betrayal, you know, that the world kind of snapped back to normal or continued on normally. And I felt as though I would never be the same. My life felt unrecognizable to me. When my mother died, it was very different. You know, it was it was isolating. It was hard. We were all kind of steeped in this collective fear and grief because it was the early weeks of the pandemic. Um, At the same time, I don't know, it wasn't entirely lonely. I felt as though most people I knew understood something of what I was feeling because we were all grieving something or someone. And it's not that I was happy to have that company. I mean, I, I very much wished this was not the case, but I think because it was, because that's the backdrop, that's what was happening to all of us. It just felt like in a way, this very communal experience of grief as well. And that was unexpected. That was very different for me. Have you found a a balance of the ideal state of griefness and okayness that you you write about in the book? No, I think I have realized that doesn't really exist. But uh, what I have found are, like I mentioned, is just a way to grieve, a way to be and live without my parents while remembering them and not blaming myself for things that were beyond our control. That was very important to me in the end. Mm-hmm. But you'd ask which parts were most difficult to write. And I think probably the the scenes with my mother, especially the ones where she was sick, mm-hmm. um, just because it was so fresh. I mean, with my first book, I wrote about matters that felt very settled in many ways. All of the events were in the past and I knew the beginning, middle, and end, I knew what was going to happen. There wasn't, there weren't a lot of surprises lurking for me in the writing of that book. With A Living Remedy, it was very different. I was writing about things sometimes as they were happening. I was very much writing about grief that was fresh and it was a new experience. It was very immediate. So there were scenes I wrote where, you know, I wept and I I don't usually do that when I write. It was sometimes tears of joy, you know, remembering something, but it was often just like, again, this grief that I was living with and trying to, um, trying to revisit and bring to life on the page. That's heavy. You know, you you talking about your mom, there reminds me of 
one of my favorite passages in this book, and it happens very early. I mean, I'm, we're talking about it in the first couple of pages here, but and you write throughout the book about the strong bonds of family. You talk about your relationship with your parents, your husband, two kids. Here's the excerpt that I want to read where you say, I think of those late afternoon talks with her. Now that I have my own children, knowing that the days of both of them falling asleep in their rooms down the hall from mine are dwindling, that a time will come when something trivial or life-changing will happen to them. They'll be hurt or caught by surprise or find that they're happier than they've ever been. And I will not be the first person they tell. That might be why I sometimes let them stay up past bedtime, chatting with me or getting silly with each other. Why even the brightest moments on the best days can crack my heart wide open. But then sometimes I wish, well, no matter where they go, no matter how far apart we are, maybe I will always be someone they think to call, someone they want to talk to, because my mother is far beyond my sight, beyond the reach of my voice, and not a day goes by when I don't think of something I wish I could tell her. Nicole, that section hits me so hard. I can totally relate to this feeling. I have not lost my mother. I still have, and I'm thankful to still have both of my parents. But I am a mother of two, just like you. And and I wonder in what ways you think motherhood has helped you really understand your parents and even yourself a little bit better. That's such a good question. And I think it's also one I try to engage with through the book. There's this ongoing experience. It's not one moment. It's not one day. It happens as we get older, um, starts when we're young and continues through our lives of learning to see our parents as not only our parents, but who they are separate from us, right? Like as as people. And I think one of the questions in the book too is like, well, how how well can you ever really know or understand your parents? And even when you can't, you know, what is there? Like, what is it that holds you together? Mm-hmm. It's not that I didn't have empathy for my parents before. I, I mean, I really, I think that I did. I was an only child and it was always the three of us. We were very close and I felt I knew them very well. I enjoyed talking with them. I asked them questions about their lives when they were alive. I cared a lot about their experiences, but there is something too about becoming a parent myself, yeah. um, you know, realizing what I am to my children and how, how I'm also more than that, realizing that the, some of the work of their lives will also be like coming to see me as a person like independent of them who still helped raise them, who helped make them who they are. I think parenthood to some degree just showed me in a way how much I'd been influenced by and really formed by my parents, despite not being their biological child, right? I'm right. still so much a product of like their love and their faith in me. And if there is, if there's a legacy they gave me, I think it's it's probably that. It's that desire to parent my kids and have that same faith in them. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are talking to Nicole Chung about her new book, A Living Remedy, a memoir. She'll be in Chicago for a book talk next week at the American Writers Museum. Nicole, there's a, another major thread in the book, and that's the the failed systems of America. I'm talking about the broken healthcare system. The Mm -hmm. lack of a safety net for people who live from check to check or who struggle with unemployment like your parents did. What was it like to confront those issues in your writing? And why did you feel it necessary to include that in this book? I mean, there was no telling the story of my family and my grief without naming and confronting these things, which are, of course, heartbreakingly common in this country. 
Um, and at the same time, despite how common they are, I had not personally read a lot of stories of grief that that took them on. I had to give myself permission, I think, to be angry in my grief for both my parents and at the same time, not blame myself for things I couldn't change. You know, I, I don't generally believe in like prescribing set lessons to readers. I always want people to take what they will from a book and I trust readers to do that. But I also know from my own experience as a reader that stories can, in their specificity, you know, help us reconsider some of these larger systemic issues that, that we may already be aware of or may have had to grapple with ourselves. And one of the things I was grappling with in my grief were all the times when my parents were failed, not only by just the American healthcare system, but by other parts of the safety net, really, that mm -hmm. they weren't able to access when they needed it. And there's such a focus on personal responsibility in this country. You know, what do we owe each other? What do we owe our, our elders, our parents? And that's well and good to a point, right? But, you know, unless you're very, very wealthy and live near your parents or can move them to you and everybody's insured and employed, like it's just very difficult in reality to meet those needs when they arise. Yeah. So part of my grief process was actually confronting the truth that I wasn't to blame. My parents weren't to blame for what happened, for the systems that failed them. Even though the way these systems work is to make you feel as though it's all on you and that it is your fault if you can't access them. So it was important for me too to try to see our story as one, not just of grief or some American tragedy, right? I also see it as a story of my parents' struggle and resistance. Mm -hmm. I see it as a story of our love because that's what we do. Even if we don't have all the support we need, even if systems do fail us, we still try to take care of each other. Yeah. So I wanted to write about that as well. And to that end, you know, you write that your your mother left you a model of forgiveness. Has, has that helped you forgive yourself for what you said you, you saw as failures as their daughter? I think it's certainly one of the things. My mother said something to me not long before she died, and it was always make forgiveness part of your farewell. And I think about that probably like, I don't know, at least once a week. And I think about it in relation to other people, you know, my, my relationships with people. But I do also think about it in terms of my relationship with myself. I think some of my mother's work was trying to get me to not be so hard on myself, right? And even now that she's gone, I think that's a lesson she's still kind of teaching me. Mm. Um, yeah. So, Nicole, you've got a lot of editing experience. With something so personal like this memoir, Nicole, was there a struggle with editing yourself? Oh, like my gosh. There's always a struggle with editing myself, even when it's like a piece of journalism that isn't personal at all. I, I'm like, I'm wrestling with a draft today, actually. It's not personal at all. It's reported, and I'm still struggling with it because I have this tendency instead of writing the thing and then like any sensible person would do like revising it in a separate like session I'll just start editing while I'm still drafting mm -hmm. um, it's a real problem my editor brain is hard to turn off again <laughs> like, that's what I did all day every day for so many years but on the flip side I think being an editor really does help me in terms of my own work I really trust the process I really believe that a story can get better. I've just seen that over and over. And, and this book taught me that as well. You know, it was a very difficult, like emotionally wrenching at times book to write. Mm -hmm. But I had to have faith in that process, in that story, and, and believe that I, I would find my way to what I wanted to say. And 
I learned to have a lot of a lot more grace and patience with myself. Was there a time where you noticed you were editing yourself and you had to just let go? You know, it's interesting. I do that with most things, but with this book, I did it less. I don't know if it was writing during the pandemic uh, or just I had left my full-time job. And so I, for the first time in my life, I could, I had just more time and space to write. I, I tend to think it was more, this story demanded like absolutely everything from me. Like it is everything I am. I couldn't just like push through. I couldn't like work with my editor brain kind of going full speed. I really did have to free myself and trust myself much more in this process. It was kind of scary, but it was really exciting too because I'd never actually experienced that mm. working on a project before. So I'm really grateful for that that sense of freedom I was able to access. You're, of course, now on this press run. You're promoting this wonderful book. Is it getting any easier to retell these very personal stories? You know, as someone who, this isn't my first memoir, I think, I think a lot about what that genre is and what it can mean to people. I think it justifies its existence when it meets readers where they are and matters to them. You know, it's not so much about making them think about my life or what happened to me, but making them think about what things have happened to them. You know, what are their experiences? And so it's incredibly gratifying, right, to meet and talk with readers who say they were able to connect with the story because because of something or someone that they lost or because they had a similar sort of class journey or because they're far from home or because they're part of the sandwich generation and they always feel torn in two. I like to think and hope there are multiple ways kind of into this story and perhaps multiple things that people could could relate to. And yeah. so I wouldn't say it makes it easier to share a story like this, I, you know, but I will say it's very gratifying. It feels like a real honor. That's a good word. You mentioned earlier your parents read through your first memoir together, chapter by chapter, but your father uh, passed away before they were able to finish it together. I know That's your right. mother finished it on her own. What do you think they would have thought about this new memoir? Oh, man, I've asked myself that so many times. And of course, it's impossible to know. You know, they, they both, as I said, had a lot of faith in me and responded incredibly generously to my first book, which they were really supportive and really proud of. So all I have to go on really is, is how they responded to the first. But I like to think that they would have like appreciated what I was trying to do and, and seen how clearly their love for me, I think, shines through this book. It's not always easy or uncomplicated. It doesn't solve all of our problems, but it's there. It's present. I hope that they would see that and appreciate it. That's Nicole Chung, author of A Living Remedy, A Memoir. You can catch her at the American Writers Museum on Tuesday, May 16th at 6 p.m. Visit AmericanWritersMuseum.org for more information. Nicole, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Sasha. It was my pleasure. This episode of Reset was produced by Stephanie Kim. It was edited by Andrew Merriweather and Dan Tucker. Catch all author interviews by subscribing to the Reset podcast. We share thoughtful conversations just like this one, along with the biggest news stories affecting our region. That'll do it for this episode. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.